Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast devoted to exploring the new connections between creative people and their audiences. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jason Fried, one of the founders of 37 Signals, a company that started as a web design firm and found that a tool it developed for itself was useful to others. They transformed themselves into a software-as-a-service company that hosts Basecamp, Campfire, and HiRise, services that help manage collaboration among parties that can be quite distantly located. Jason is also one of the co-authors of Rework, a book about building a company that sheds preconceptions about what works in making a firm. Hi, Jason. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Glenn. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It was suggested by a listener that I have you on, and I knew, I've known about 37 Signals, of course, forever, and everyone I know who works in companies with spread out operations, which is every company these days, I hear about Basecamp all the time. All, you know, these are incredible tools of collaboration. So I have to, of course, look at your company history, and I find there's, I think, three different ways in which you, in which you have so much to offer people trying to understand how to reach an audience more directly. First, you transformed your own company with your partners. Second, you've got tools that are designed to help people break down walls and distances. And third, you wrote a book that's basically about how to shed all these ideas that have been layered onto what a business should be, especially a startup internet business, but I think a business in general, and make the right start, make the right decisions along the way where you're not doing things blindly because of what you think you should be doing, like taking investment capital, for instance. So, I mean, there's there's so much to talk about. Let, let's start with the business. You were a web design firm that started in the late 90s. You're one of the early ones there, and it sounds like you had some fairly big clients in those days. Yeah, we started the business in 1999. We did some work for some big clients and some small clients. It wasn't really about getting big clients or small clients. It was about getting the right clients, the ones that we felt like we could do good work for. That's something I learned early on is that, you know, we always talk about clients hire you, but you have to hire clients too, really, at the end of the day. We found the good people to work with, and we, they allowed us to do good work. And that allowed us to get better work and more work. And it, it was great. It was fun. It was fun. And then we got really busy um, doing this kind of work. And we needed a better way to manage those projects that we were doing because we were using email, uh, which is what most people still use today for managing projects and communicating. We looked around at some of the tools that existed at the time, like Microsoft Project and a, and a variety of others. And they were all sort of really complicated and solving the wrong problems, and solving problems we didn't have and not solving the problems we did have. And so we decided to build our own tool just to have something that felt more professional than email. And that's how Basecamp ultimately ended up happening. A few years later, 2004, we released that. And that changed our whole business completely. And that was early in the software as a service world. It's, if I'm recalling right, is that that was that concept. I'm not even sure SAAS as an abbreviation had started. I mean, you had, um, oh, I don't know, Salesforce was not, were they, they didn't even start it up yet, had they, or were they early? It was pretty early. I think that they may have been around, but I mean, SAS, the, the concept of software as a service, uh, it wasn't really something that people were talking about. It was just like web-based software or software that happened to be on the web. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't really a category yet. While there were tools that existed, people had made some things. It wasn't clear that this is going to be where things were going. It was just another way to do something. And it turned out 
a few years later that it really was the new way of doing things. There was that big divide between, uh, and this came up again when mobile phones came out, it was a big divide between native programs on the desktop you're working on. And those were best, right? Like Microsoft Project, if you know, even if it didn't do what you wanted to do, it was fast, it was responsive. It, a lot of these tools had some kind of network ability, maybe not a great internet ability, even in the early 2000s. And web apps at that time, they weren't even called web apps. Typically, you might have to write something in Java. It wasn't that interactive. And then we went through this transformation where the web became nearly as easy to use as native apps. And your first product came out right at that time. It seems like that, that there was this idea, Hey, uh, something like Basecamp, we could do everything on the web and it's going to work the way we want. It's not going to be a limitation or a hindrance to what we're doing. And because it's the web, we can access it everywhere from every device and every employee can get access to it. Yeah, see, it was a natural fit. And this wasn't planned. I mean, this just kind of ended up happening. Um, So I look back on it and say it was a natural fit, but we weren't thinking it was a natural fit at the time. (laughs) But people were using Microsoft Project back then. And Microsoft Project is a broadcast tool in that like a project manager has it on their computer and they print out charts, Gantt charts and stuff, and they tell people what to do. We didn't think that project management was about broadcast. We thought it was about communication. You know, we didn't think it was about charts. We thought it was about discussions. It wasn't about statistics. It was about communication and talking to clients and getting their feedback. And, and it just so happened that the web was perfect for that because it was a centralized thing somewhere else. And you can have these conversations online and keep them in one central location instead of having clients and uh, when I mean clients, software clients on each person's computer, which no one's ever going to install and download and deal with that stuff. It happened to be that collaboration software was a perfect fit for the web in a way that photo editing software or video software wouldn't have made any sense because there was no inherent advantage to having something centralized, unlike there is when you have a project and you have multiple participants in different locations. So it just happened to be the right fit at the right time. And uh, and it took off. There's this concept, I think, that comes up all the time now, especially between uh, thin and thick. I mean, we, we used to talk about thin and thick clients. You have like a thick client or a thick desktop was very smart and it sort of had everything on it and programs were native. And a thin one had a very, you know, small, thin layer between you and the software, the internet or whatever it was. And I think there's also thin and thick intermediaries. And something like Microsoft Project is thick because it forces you to work within the constraints of the program and doesn't let you collaborate as easily, even though its intention is, where where Basecamp is a very thin intermediary is it's the barrier to get into it. I just have to have a web browser. If I want to add 100 employees, I can make them accounts and they can access the internet and we're done. That's, I think, where all this, and that's a real advantage to this stuff, which is that it's it's simple. No one has to download anything. Um, Well, it can be complicated too, just because it's on the web. (laughs) <laughs> doesn't make right. it easy. I mean, it, it can be made to be very hard as well. So you, you still have to make, you still have to work hard to think about what do people really need, what do people really want, what jobs are they trying to do, and how do we design something that's as clear and coherent and simple and obvious as possible, understanding that it's never quite as as simple as you really want it to because there's so many different kinds of people using it and they have all these different requirements and stuff. So, you know, it's a real challenge to do, but if you do it right... And if you have something like the web out there where you can put this thing that no one has to worry about software anymore. I mean, that's what the real beauty of this is like. It used to be that computers, oh, I mean, it still is, but people thought about software. They had to like install something. They had to do something. What's nice about the web is you just have to go somewhere, which is a very different idea 
and, and that basically sidestepped a lot of IT departments because IT departments wouldn't let people install software on their computers, but IT departments would let people use a web browser of some sort to get out to the web. So it really helped this stuff get into organizations that normally would not have allowed external software to be installed. But since it's a website, it's not really external software. So that sort of broke down those barriers. And there was some sort of people just going rogue and just saying, I need something that works. Uh, they're not going to let me install this. Fine. I'll just go to the site that works. You know, I'll just use it. I don't care where it is. It just, it works. That's what I care about. And that's, that's what happened. That's what's happening. Still, what's happening today. Right, and that's that breakdown between, you know, as you say, is there's uh, gatekeepers inside companies too that prevent things from happening, often for good reasons because they have to maintain the software. There's a cost factor. They're trying to prevent viruses. They're trying to keep information that should stay inside a company from getting outside the company and all of that. But at the same time, they have uh, a vested interest in maintaining their job, and to maintain their job, they need software to install and maintain and operate. And if you have a product that even if it saves the company money, it may not be appealing to the IT department because it doesn't fit into the mindset of the kind of thing they're used to doing and that makes sense and that's worked up until this point. And that's all true. And you know, I, I sympathize with, with people in IT departments because it is a really tough job and computers are complicated things and it's frustrating to help people who aren't sure what they're doing and I totally get all that. Like they come at it from a more of a security perspective and a privacy perspective and a and a and an order in like an order perspective. Like we need to keep make sure things are working. We need to know what's running so we don't screw something else up. So I understand that. But then you have these teams inside companies that actually need need to get work done, and they don't care about that stuff. Just like the IT department doesn't necessarily care about the projects these other people are working on. So that's where these headbutts start happening. These collisions start happening. And then when certain goals override other goals, that's when you get into trouble. So when a team needs to get something done and they need a tool to get something done with, but they can't because of some other policy, then what happens is, is you basically open up a black market, really, which is the way it works <laughs> in the world, you know, everywhere else. Right. You can't get what you want, so you sort of technically get it illegally. And a lot of people sign up for these web services. And like a lot of our products have made it into bigger companies kind of doing an end around, sort of someone went rogue. They said, I, you know, look, it's only 20 bucks a month. I'll pay for it with my own credit card. I just want to use something that works because what I've been told to use doesn't work or I can't get something that works through the normal channels. And I think that's how a lot of the software is actually breaking into the, quote, enterprise now, which is it, it's, people are using it and for small projects, either maybe freelancing or using it at home or something, and they realize that it's, it's so much more useful and it works so much better than the stuff that they're told to use at work, that they bring the consumer-like stuff in, and that's really changing that, that whole game. Yeah, this is like, instead of BYOD, you know, bring your own device, which has <laughs> become very common, this is B-Y-O-S-A-A-S, I think. Yeah, I think it is. So this reminds me of the whole Cathedral and Bazaar essay that was written years ago by Eric S. Raymond, the open source guru, or the not the free source guru, but I think open source more so. And his thing was you have this institutionalized process that's in the cathedral, and it's dogmatic, and it has all these trappings, and that is often the IT department. And then you have the in, in this model, and then you have the Bazaar, which is the free flow of information, in which information is just it's a crazy thing, and it's a market in which ideas are exchanged openly and freely, and market prices change, goods change based on what the demands of the market are. Even in this scenario, you have Basecamp versus traditional products in the IT sense. That's a it's a bizarre and cathedral situation, and people love bazaars. You go to the cathedral because you have to, you're obliged to, <laughs> right, but right, you go right. to the bazaar because that's where the community is. That's where the action is, and it plays out. That was the whole Clue Train manifesto. More than gosh, how long is this? Fifteen years ago, yeah, at almost least, now. Yeah. 
was markets are conversations is that you're talking to people. You're not talking at people. And once you engage in conversation, the entire nature of a market changes and it frees up. It becomes that bizarre. I, I totally follow what you're saying. I'm not familiar with what you're talking about specifically that you must be a young man. Now, now I'm showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm just maybe not as well read as I should be in some cases. I agree that when people are forced to use things that don't work, they will go outside uh, yeah. of, of that and find something that works because their job depends on something working. If they don't get their job done, they don't have a job anymore. So they don't care what the policy is. They care about getting a job done, getting something done. And so they'll do whatever it takes to, to make it work. And some people, like I said, pay with their own money. One of the reasons we made Basecamp really affordable was so people didn't have to go and get an expense approved. I think there's generally, depends on the company, but some places it's anything over 250 bucks or over 500 bucks, you have to get that formally approved. And so by keeping the price really low, people didn't have to get these approvals and they can just put it on the corporate card or put it on their account somehow and get it through without facing questioning. It's also that thing, you also don't have to have a programming project inside your own company. And you guys did that. You found you needed a programming project and it turned into something. I've had, I think, half the episodes of the podcast so far, we've talked about having to build your own content management system on the editorial oh, side. God, yeah. I had an episode that was practically <laughs> called that was the chain of tools, a recent episode about how you chain together all these tools to make things work because there's no product that works for you. You guys, I want to say you didn't flip it around exactly, but you created something that meets the needs well enough for a large enough number of people that they don't have to either buy shrink wrap software that doesn't meet their needs or do that in-house development. If you go to your company and say, we could do all of this and we don't have to spend a dollar on developer time. We can just sign up for this service. And yes, it doesn't do X maybe. It does Y, Z, alpha, beta, gamma. And that seems like a powerful thing to say, especially in the post-2008 era. Well, this is something that I think a lot of software companies get wrong, which is that they think the more features they add, the bigger mm. the market. I think it's completely the opposite. So I think the simpler the product the more rudimentary the product, the more generic and basic the product, the bigger the market. Because people don't need complicated things. They just need something that does a few <laughs> things well enough. And that's all they need, really, truly. I mean, it's amazing when you hear from customers. First of all, some of them do need more sophisticated things because they have a more sophisticated organization and whatever. That, that exists, too. But the vast majority of people basically use email to run almost <laughs> the entire part, like their entire business runs on email, which right. I actually think is fine too. I love email. I know a lot of people don't like email. I think email is a fantastic thing. So people, all we have to do is be slightly better than email. We don't need to be like a hundred times better than email. <laughs> slightly better than that email is, is our motto. That's a great slogan though. Basically. No, that's great. Then here's the thing too. If you try and be too much better than email, People will fall back to email. People always fall back to familiarity, and they fall back to email because it works. Everyone has an email address. There's no adoption curve. It just works. So there's, a, there's, this, there's this precious place between email and slightly better than email that I think that's where you want to be. If you try and get too sophisticated and make people move too far away from something they're used to, it's a very hard sell, and people often resort back to email. Um, and so, for example... We spend a lot of energy making sure that Basecamp works really well with email. In fact, a lot of people who use Basecamp never even log into Basecamp. They do everything through email. So when you post a message, it goes out via email. You can respond via email. You don't have to log in. You can add content via email. You can add to-do lists via email. Email is the poor man's API 
And it's a fantastic thing. Everyone can do email. That's Everyone the thing. Do is you don't you teach. I mean, my my mother in law has been this. I bring her up as an example. I hope she never listens to podcasts. I love her <laughs> dearly, but she's owned her own computer for twenty something years. She does not know how to use it, and she uses it for hours every day. But she can do email. Yes, email in my mind is it's the only technology that has no adoption curve anymore. There's still like Twitter's very simple, and Facebook like these things are still simple, but there's still an adoption curve. Email has no adoption curve. If you have a computer, you have an email address, and you've sent email before, and you know how to do it. You know how to receive it. You know how to send it. You may not know how to do multiple recipients and BCC and all that stuff, but you know how to send an email, and you have an email address. So the closer you can make software to email, the better off you're going to be, even though the whole tech industry seems to run, want to run in the opposite direction and say, Emails is old technology. We need to replace it. It's terrible. I don't think that that's true at all. I think it's fantastic. And if we paid more attention to why it's so successful, we could learn a whole lot. This was the, I think, the big movement that happened when blogging started to become big and then wikis became big was the capture of systematic institutional knowledge or the systematic systematic capture of institutional knowledge. So much information is lost when people change jobs, when they lose email, when they just don't make a note, when they leave the company or fired or companies acquired. And I think when blogging first started, you know, really as a personal thing, not as a professional one, but there was a quick push, I think, to bring it into companies because the internal blog was a way to share information in a chronological fashion. And it had aspects of broadcast email and the wiki had aspects of email archiving. It was like, let's distill what we're talking talking about in email into something that's or in some documents that we present in meetings that we're passing around via email to to have some you know coherent expression of what we're doing we're putting in even a small company you could have do you have i know uh, you still have what 16 employees no we, now? we're up right? to like 35 but we're still oh, small my goodness oh, well i read your i read your book and obviously there's yeah, an out of date even with that number of employees even with uh, i've been in organizations where there's like five of us it's so easy to lose information and email is a great tool for exchanging contemporary data but it's not a great tool for retention and that's the layer that you're focused on right is being able to make it as easy as email, but have that retention layer that lets you go back and figure out what's going on. That's true. And this is what's kind of interesting about this. We've been interviewing some customers over the past year or so, trying to find out um, why they, we, we say, why they hire Basecamp. Why are they, why are they hiring Basecamp? And, and it turns out that um, you know, we, we've always marketed Basecamp as a project management tool. But really, what people use it for is a cover-your-ass tool. <laughs> Which is exactly what you were just talking about. Right. There paper is a trail. Paper trail. There is an, <laughs> a, a record of who said what when, who approved mm-hmm. what when, when was this sent, when was this posted, when was this delivered. All that stuff is so valuable for people, just like what you said, because there's contracts with clients and you must deliver things by a certain time and certain day. And, and then there's the, well, you approve this. Well, no, I didn't. Well, yeah, you did. It's right here. We have proof of it. And when, when that stuff is just simply in people's inboxes, it's very easy to say, well, I didn't have that and I don't have that. But when it's all centralized online in one place and it's archived for the record, date stamp, time stamp, person stamped, it's a digital paper trail. And that, interestingly enough, is one of the key values of Basecamp. We don't even realize this, but that turns out to be one of the main reasons why people buy it. And we need to adjust our marketing around that a bit more too. So that was kind of a really interesting insight. But it is that. It has to be as easy as email, but it has to be better email in terms of 
record keeping and consistent location, centralized, so it's all in one place, and everyone knows where everything is, and nothing ever gets lost. This gets back to that thin part too. Is that you're putting an overlay onto something people are familiar with. You're not getting in the way of it because you're letting them use email, but they have this interface if they want it. And it's not imposing a hierarchy from the outside that they have to learn and adapt to in order to run their business. And I, I mean, I think that's true. Um, you know, you've got these three products, Basecamp, Rise, and Campfire, and we won't turn this into a product examination. No. But I think there's, co- I mean, there's, of course, commonalities across them and, and other projects you're involved in is that you're saying, Modern companies, I can't tell you how many firms I talk to these days, probably all your clients are in this boat, have maybe they have a central office, but often don't. They might have a couple people working in one space. They've got people in co-working maybe in the area or people working around the world. I'm working on this project, the magazine with Marco Armit, this yep. iOS publication. Sure. And our uh, contributors, we're already at the point where we don't have uh, even regular contributors really, but because we don't publish enough, often enough. But even so, I'm dealing this week with people in Pakistan, Kuwait, Australia, and everywhere across the United States and trying to manage just that, even from an incoming standpoint. I look at something like Campfire, where I hear all the time that this for a number of large organizations I have connections to, Campfire is the way in which they bind staffs together. They try to do, you know, video meetings and so forth as well. But Campfire is where they live and it provides a connection that you can't get otherwise unless you are there in person. And there's no other tool. I don't, I'm gonna, don't want to overstate it, but there's no other tool like Campfire that's designed in this way that isn't a public tool that you're taking advantage of a private part of. There's so many tools that are designed for private chat rooms and AOL or whatever, but they're not, it's an adjunct and it's often a consumer adjunct as opposed to a professional tool that's designed to encourage people to be talking on a regular basis. You keep the window open. And I know people who they are campfires where they live. They have Twitter on one side and the public side campfire on the other as they work through any given day for whatever organization they work for. That's how we work here. And that's why we built campfire. We built it because we're uh, an organization spread across currently uh, over 30 cities uh, around the world. So we have 13 people in Chicago, but everyone else is in a different city all over the place. So we have a very distributed company. And what we found was that we needed a central place to have all these communications, this real-time stuff. It's sort of ephemeral. I mean, it's all recorded in transcripts, but it doesn't even matter necessarily that it's recorded. Sometimes you just need a central place to have a company culture, especially when you have a remote workforce. If you have two separate cultures in your company, it's going to splinter. So for us, Campfire is that central place. Even if I'm sitting next to somebody, I'm still talking to them at Campfire, just as if I'm talking to somebody in Oklahoma City or someone in, in the U.K. who works for us. And speaking of all this remote stuff, by the way, we're working on a, a new book, which will be out at the end of the year, called Remote, which is going to be all about how to work remotely. It's something we've learned over the past eight years or so, how to do it, how to build a company remotely, how to hire people you've never met, how to work with people you've never seen. And, I'll, uh, I, will, I will buy this book because even even in my I'm you know I'm a little bit of an entrepreneur, but I mostly spend my time working as a cog in a lot of different companies. And the biggest problem we have is when you're trying to create these enterprises where you're doing everything yourself that you can, and you outsource the parts that you can't, or you buy software, you subscribe to services where you can't. That remote part is the hardest part, I think, is figuring out how do you work with people? How do you hire them without meeting them? How do you work with them? And I think in this sort of, I don't know, are we in the new, new economy? We're in economy 5.0. I don't know where we are now. <laughs> but you know, in the in the Kickstarter, Etsy, like creative economy in which you have different options for raising money, different options for producing things where you can 
send things around the world to get 3D printed or mass manufactured, you're constantly, if you're going to be part of this economy, you're constantly working with people. Some of them will work for you, right? And some of them are contractors and you may work for some of them. I think this is the most significant problem we face as this kind of new idea of companies working so directly with their audiences and so directly controlling all the means of production to get there, this seems like the biggest problem that's coming up, as opposed to things like even like raising money is a different issue. It's better known and better characterized, and there's a path for that than how you deal with the people dynamics. And that's totally spot on. I mean, it used to be a lot harder to, to raise money if you want to do that sort of thing, but with Kickstarter and all the other tools and, and just a lot more money out there right now, it's that's sort of a known problem now. If you want to get money, here are the paths to get money. You may not get it, but here's what you need to do to get it. I haven't really seen the clear path to how to build a company this way written about yet. I mean, there's been a few articles here and there, but we want to write the the guide to it because we've had so much experience with it. And uh, we're interviewing a bunch of other companies right now who work this way. It's not just about us. It's about how, how they make it work. And sometimes it's just a matter of a small team inside of a big organization. Some organizations are completely remote. Sometimes it's just this, you know, one team. Sometimes it's a few teams. Sometimes remote means working at home in the same city. Sometimes remote means working across state lines or, or different countries, uh, time zones. You know, there's a lot of interesting things you have to consider. But what we found is that the, the best thing you can do is hire the best people you can find no matter where they are. If you limit yourself to geography, you're typically, in, unless you're in a few really special places, um, you know, if you limit yourself to geography, you're, you're not going to be able to hire the best people that exist. Now, there are great people everywhere. So, like, we have one of our best designers lives in Oklahoma City. One of our, our best programmers lives in Idaho. Um, one of our ops guys lives in Russia. We've got a few people in the U.K. <laughs> yeah. We've got some people in upstate New York. I mean, people are all over the place. Uh, my business partner lives in Spain half the year. And, you know, it's just you got to figure out how to make that work. And if you can figure out how to make it work, you have such a huge advantage because you can call on the best talent all over the world, not just people who can get to your office within an hour's commute. I keep coming back to these concepts of the difference between the world of atoms, world of bits. And we talk about that a lot in terms of manufacturing stuff. And 3D printing is this great uh, place where those things collide a bit, where you're using digital technology to drive physical production in a way that's totally new, unheard of in the history of mankind. We always had to do stuff with our hands or when computers came around, it was all digital, right? It was something we could perceive. So I feel like there's the same issue developing in a weird way with work because we have this notion that's broken down that work has to all be done in the same place. And then there's piecework, which can be done all over the place. And that's how a lot of the manufacturing world works, or sometimes factories, sometimes million people doing stuff at home. This issue of remote work becomes even more interesting is, is okay, what if we're working all virtually? Do we ever have to see each other in person? What's the physical world component, even time zones? Or we can't escape, we can't escape biology or geography, mm-hmm. but we have this amazing worldwide tool that now has spread the speeds of service that are available in more and more places we're at a point where it's more ubiquitous than it ever has been to a ridiculous degree. You can work in tiny villages in uh, developing nations and get enough bandwidth to do practical stuff. It is a technology problem at mm. the extremes. You know, some if you need access and, and you're somewhere you don't have it, that's the problem. But assuming that that's still going to be taken care of, I still think the, the real challenge is just the, the cultural recognition of the fact that if you are a manager – and you can't see an employee, you have to understand that that does not mean that they're slacking off, that that does not mean they're not doing their work. That's something that has to change. So people have to 
just get used to the fact that not seeing someone is okay. Now, that doesn't mean you should never see them. We bring people in. We fly people in. You know, everyone's just a flight away. It's a few hundred bucks occasionally to bring someone in for a few days. It's not a that's, huge deal. That's the question I had is you actually do – because that's the – I mean that's the Adams part is that you actually want to have face-to-face communication to – you're trying to calibrate culture when you meet in person? Yeah. So you, we do. So what we do is we bring at least three times a year. We bring the whole company together for a week here in Chicago at our office. We just hang out. You know, we talk a little bit about business, what's going on, but mostly it's just to hang out, to get everyone to know each other, especially for new employees who, who've only been typing to each other. You know, it's nice <laughs> to see everybody's face and hear everyone's voice. And we go out for dinner, we just hang out. So that's nice. And then occasionally we bring small teams together throughout the year. Either um, they go off on a little remote thing for themselves or they come to Chicago. Or we bring in a programmer, designer who work on a project together occasionally because there's definitely, there's no doubt that face-to-face is a, the highest bandwidth there is. The problem is is that when you have it all the time, you waste it. Um, you end up, just like most things, when it's not scarce, you just waste it. And so when, when you introduce scarcity to in-person exchanges, they're much, much higher value because they're rare and, and people really treat – like people say, hey, we only have eight hours together. Let's make this count compared to like – Let's screw around like we're always together. We can just like procrastinate and find out, figure this out later. So I like the idea of introducing scarcity into face-to-face interactions because it does increase the value, I think, of those interactions. It's like if you haven't seen a friend for a long time, you know, you, you get together and you have a really great lunch or dinner or whatever, and it's just like it's really good. But if you did that every Thursday night, it just wouldn't be as interesting. You know, it just wouldn't be. So that's, that's what we try and do with work, and it's worked out quite well for us. This is a great transition into the book Rework. Also, we're talking about your next book, but this book from uh, three years ago now, I just read it. I've heard about it since it came out, and I'm thinking, well, oh, you know, I worked by myself. This can't be that useful for me because I'm a contractor. I read it. I'm like, oh, my goodness. It's full of these insights that are hard won for you, and I'm so happy to see someone stating it so bluntly. There's something in one of your early chapters I'll quote from it. It's, don't be insecure about aiming to be a small business. Anyone who runs a business that's sustainable and profitable, whether it's big or small, should be proud. Thank you very much. (laughs) Because that's I started in the internet business in 93. I was building websites in 93 and some of the first commercial sites. And I never got that taste for maybe a combination of, it wasn't as greed and confusion about what the goal state was. And everyone kept talking about get big fast. I worked at Amazon for six months and I had to leave because of a lot of reasons you cite in this book about the problems in thinking they had about workaholism and so forth. And I've been saying since 96, like get big slow, get big slow, because that's a more sustainable path to sanity and profitability. And I think your whole book, it seems to be with your, with your co-authors here. It's, I think it seems to be such a great distillation of it's a notion of what can work if you aren't obsessed with the notion of being bought out, becoming a company that's too big, growing fast, all the rest of it. It's a great statement of that. I think um, growth is is one of the real curses, actually, of of business today. Specifically, our business grows, you know, but growth is not the goal. When growth becomes the goal, I think you're in trouble. And it seems like in our current culture, big is just where it's at. Like everyone wants to grow the big company and, and get the big venture rounds and, and hire a bunch of people, and and it's all about like how big's your company. Well. You know, if you say your company's 30 people, I go, oh, that's cute. 
You know, like instead mm-hmm. of like what you know, if you say we're three hundred <laughs> people, like oh wow, you're you're the real deal. But I think that that's just such a perverse way of looking at things. To me, it's about this sounds ridiculous because it's so simple. <laughs> but like, can you make more money than you spend? Can you enjoy doing the work that you do? Can you have an impact? Can you hire great people and give them a great job? Can you allow them to do the best work of their lives at your company? Like that's that's what's interesting to me. Like I, I love looking at businesses like restaurants who've been in business for 20 years. To me, that's way more impressive than someone raising 10 million bucks and fizzling out in three years. You know, I'm always curious about dry cleaners. There's like a dry cleaner every corner and somehow they don't go out of business. Like what is the business model or how are these people surviving? How are they making it work? I just love these businesses that have been around for a long time. I find that so much more interesting, the businesses that are temporary. And I, I feel like we're currently in a business culture that is all about temporary. It's build something to get you know, the aqua hire or the buyout or the, uh, it's all about like this next step versus like, what are you actually doing now to do something great? And so I'm much more of a fan of keeping things small as you possibly can growing naturally growing, which means growing slowly and carefully. I get a little weird about this, but I, I, I always like think about building a business like a tree grows, which is like nice and slow and sturdy you know, great root system, nice solid base. It can withstand the storms because it's grown slowly and carefully, and like you know, takes its time, and, and and then it just becomes this really strong thing. Compared to these like super fast growing trees, which they plant like on the on the street just to like throw something up really quick, it dies in like twelve years, and it's diseased <laughs> like in four years because it's 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 just it's a temporary tree. I like. Oak trees. I like trees that have been there for 300 years. I don't like temporary trees. So I'm trying to build as permanent a company as possible. Of course, nothing lasts forever. I want to do this for, for the rest of my life. And I, and I want people who work here to feel like they are doing the best work of their lives as well. Well, you've got these crazy ideas in the book, like um, not working crazy hours, like working four days a week in the summer and not working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks and not necessarily taking outside money and not trying to say yes to everything in order to grow fast. And these only sound crazy because it's the most promotion, the most coverage that companies get in, I think, in business media and certainly the online site, internet sites, uh, you know, Business Insider and the like, they're focused on these big wins. And I don't, do you know the concept of the hecatomb? No, I don't. This is a great thing. I learned it via Stephen Jay Gould, who used uh-huh. it as a as a metaphor for evolution. The hecatomb was a sacrifice in Greek and Roman times to of a hundred oxen or cattle, right? So you're it's a massive thing. Heca is the hundred, right? So yep. his concept that I really liked is he modified this a little. He said, think of it that way, but think of evolution that for every mutation that's successful moves forward, you're slaughtering. There's a hecatomb, and one <laughs> might go forward, and that one. So it's not that nature has this wonderful course and everything develops perfectly. Sometimes people think of evolution as useful stuff occurs, and that's it. It's like, no, a hundred te- you know, mutations that were invaluable. The hundred losers died, and the one gene pool went forward. And this is what I see when I look at the internet. I mean, it certainly happened in the dot-com bus, but it's even happening today is a hundred companies are funded and maybe one gets that billion dollar valuation. And is it the best? Are they doing the best by the customers, employees themselves? And the other 99 are going to go out of business and they take all the money and effort, people and time down with it. That's the thing that's so disappointing to me is that 
There are a lot of businesses out there that probably could have been fantastic ten million dollar businesses. Yes, right. They try and win the lottery, and they they try and go for the hundred million or the five hundred million or the billion dollar. I don't even know why, but that's what they do, and they fizzle out and die. And with that, you lose products, people lose their jobs, all these things that happen because of of that. When people are overreaching, when they should said, "Hey, we can build a fantastic." Company that makes ten million dollars. I mean, when did a million dollars become a small amount of money? First of all, it's so weird that like we can only talk in hundreds or, or billions to be impressive. I mean, if you can build something that generates profits and you can make something that generates a few million bucks a year, and you have enough money to pay everyone comfortable salaries and you give people a great place to work, that to me is the ultimate success story. It's not. Getting bought out because if you didn't, you'd be out of business. Like that's what happens. A lot of these、mm-hmm. buyouts, they're only happening because the small company couldn't survive. Yet it's seen as a as a success story. Well, it's not a success story if they can't survive. It's a, might be a success story for the the shareholders of this small company. But what about one of the things that really bugs me these days is that there's a lot of great products out there that die because the companies that are building them have no intention of sticking around. They're just building them to impress someone else to get bought out, and then the small company gets bought out, and all their customers are screwed because the product that they were developing goes away. What a terrible outcome!、Yes. <laughs> It might be a good outcome for three people, but for what about for all those customers that put their 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 time and energy and effort and money and trust in this company to build a product that is now gone because someone made some money off of it? It's just such a sad state of affairs, and, and I. I And our industry is the worst at that, and it really kind of bugs me. You have this deficit. You don't have a greed gene, apparently. And I just was searching the contents of、uh, the nice thing about Kindle, right?、I、was searching the contents of rework, and the word greed doesn't appear in the book negatively or positively. And I think greed is a very complicated set of things. But there's an avariciousness, a, a desire to have more, to have money and power, or maybe freedom that. You don't seem to have to the degree that these people who need to have extreme valuations do. If you, I think, if you have a certain kind of ambition,、um, one of the secrets of Amazon.com is Jeff Bezos has always wanted to go to space. Yes, and the most efficient way for him to go to space was to found a multi-billion-dollar company and generate a huge <laughs> amount of stock wealth so that he could build Blue Origin. And I mean, I'm I'm partly joking, but when I worked there, he was always a space nut. And、yep. you have to say, like, okay, you know, he actually didn't make the money because, and he was not a greedy person. It was fascinating、yeah. to watch how fast Amazon grew and grows when you have someone there. But his goal, I really do think, was to found space exploration, private space exploration. But most of the people involved in companies that grow big, and you know, or these startups in which people hope to become a billion dollar. Firm, their focus is on. It's not on the customers or products, even if they say it is. It's on the money part of it, and it's you know it's a curse in the United States about compensation of executives and bank dealings and all the rest of it. And your book is rework is all about, and I think you and you embody it in the company is all about. Yes, we're going to make money. We're going to make a profit. Don't be ridiculous. We like we like to go out to eat. We like maybe to buy a boat sometime. Whatever. Yep. But we're not going to sacrifice everything to get that profit because then you know you lose your soul and you probably lose your company nine times out of ten or ninety nine times out of a hundred. Exactly. I mean, look, I'm a capitalist. Like I, I own a business. I'm an entrepreneur. I, I believe in profit. I, I like I like all that stuff. I. I, I I'm not afraid of money. I, I enjoy money, like all those things. But, but it doesn't drive me. It, it, it can't drive you. If, if, if you're only in it for that, then like I don't. To me, that's just sort of an empty, 
empty reason to be in it. But that's just my take. I love building things. And for me, I'm not just building a product, but I'm building a company. I'm building an environment where I can work with brilliant people. People can do great work. We can enjoy going to work every day. Evaluation doesn't get me up in the morning. I don't care about valuation. Valuation doesn't buy me a sandwich. You, know, you, can't, you can't go to Subway and go, I'm worth a billion dollars. Give me a $5 for They're like, I want $5. So for me, like, profit is, 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 is a way to show that what you're doing is working and it's air and water for a company. And I, I want to make my own air and water. I don't, that's the other thing. Like, I want to breathe my own air and water. I don't want to have to depend on, and of course, that comes from our customers, but I don't want to have to depend on an outside source that needs to continue to feed me that isn't connected to what I'm doing. So if I have to go out and get loans or raise more money, that's not connected to what I'm doing compared to having your customers be your investors when they buy your product and they pay you money for it. Your, your, your incentives are then aligned with the customers, and I just feel like you build better products that way. Profit margin is the proof that you're giving value to your customers because they're paying more than a service is worth to you. The, the secret to this stuff is make sure whatever you price your thing at, your product or your service, whatever it is, it's got to be less than the, the perceived value. So like, if someone feels like Basecamp for them is, is saving them thousands of hours a year in headache, like 20 bucks a month is a no-brainer then. It's an absolute no-brainer. So you got to make sure that what, what you're charging for is, is such a no-brainer price compared to the amount of time and money that it's saving other people. And then, then you can sell a lot of things. For me, it's never, ever been about what are we worth. I don't even know what right. we're worth. I don't care what we're worth. <laughs> it doesn't matter at all. I don't think about it for a second. But this shows too in the fact that you guys don't have a, you're not a freemium company. You've got a 60 day trial yeah. and then you pay. And to me, that seems to be one of the hallmarks. Now it's not, I wouldn't say it's exclusively so, but I'm looking at, for instance, um, uh, ADN uh, runs app.net. I'll be talking to them in, uh, Dalton Caldwell there in, uh, in a few weeks. And one of the things that was fascinating to me about them pivoting from the photo service they had pick please that didn't work out and sort of getting angry at the giant companies that were trying to, clamp down and control infrastructure, they pivot and said, we're not going to become a big company fast. We're going to have a high cost and you have to pay to become a member. And there was sort of an outrage about that. And there's issues about exclusionaryism and conversation and so forth, because I think people confuse them with being a Twitter competitor as opposed to what they actually are. But it was that notion of, uh, we don't need a 10 million customers overnight. We can't handle that. We don't want to do that. They have investment money that's still in there from, an, uh, uh, Andreessen Horowitz and others, but their goal is to now grow it slowly and have a paid membership and they're lowering the price over time. They already have one big price drop. And that seems to be a hallmark of a company that wants to grow big slow or be profitable from the start is you're confident you have a valuable enough service that you don't have to give it away because there's no benefit to you or necessarily to your customers to give it away for free. Yeah. So when we first started, we kind of were one of the first freemium sort of companies. When we first started, we did have a free trial. You could use Basecamp for free for as long as you wanted on one project. If you wanted more than one project, then you'd have to pay. Um, but when we launched our, and that worked for, and it still works, that worked for a long time, but when we launched the brand new version of Basecamp a year ago, which we totally redid from scratch, we decided that we were no longer going to give away anything for free other than a trial. We feel like the product is worth the price. We want to show customers that we believe that. This is, we, we are here. We're going to be here for a long, long, long time. And this is how much it costs. We're used to buying everything. We buy food, we buy clothes, we buy 
transportation. We buy all these things. Why is it that software isn't something that we should be used to buying? I believe that we should. So we sell it just like every other company sells what they what they provide. If I pay you, that means that you actually want money from me and you're going to be around. If I don't have to pay you and if 95% of your customers are not paying you, I know that your goal is to sell out to a firm based on the size of membership you have because you can't monetize that large a user base effectively to make the kind of profit you need to run a company that big. It's it That's a big part of it too. And, and that's getting back to what I was talking about earlier is that you know, you see companies talking about how many users they have and, and all this stuff. And what ends up happening is a lot of these companies who start out giving everything away for free and then figure, try like later on, they're going to like, I'm going to pull the revenue lever and figure out how to make money off people. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to do that when people are used to getting stuff for free, first of all. It also sends a message that when your stuff's free, it's not really worth that much. Like, you don't give things that are valuable away for free. No one does. Um so if you're just giving it away for free, like how valuable is it really? And I think that makes it even harder for people to, to trust the product. And then last, like a lot of people use these free products and then the company goes away, like you just said, because it's mm-hmm. not sustainable. And then the product goes away. And it, what a bummer. Like I'd rather invest <laughs> I'd rather invest in a company that I believe in. I'd rather buy products from a company that I believe in who's there behind me because that's a real business. There's alternate models, of course. Um, I'm just a, a very simple Warren Buffett kind of guy. Like I just like believe in value. Uh, you know, like it doesn't need to be complicated. Just make long-term. something that's great that people like long term. Charge them a fair price. Give them great service, and and everything's going to take care of itself. I mean, there are freemium models that work, but I think it's where they give a taste instead of the full product. So yeah. they're giving you a flavor, and that flavor may be useful, but the limit is so low that it really is a long-running demo. You know, there's services I use where if you use, if there's one registered user or two, you can use it forever. And I'm like, but the minute you get third, you're like, oh, this has been very useful to me. I'll pay. And the resources for one or two people are so low. What is the advantage to having a million users who aren't paying you anything? Compared to, let's say, 10,000 users who absolutely love your product and are paying you 50 bucks a month. For me, I, I'm more interested in the smaller user base, devoted, paying customer base, than I am with an absolute big number count who isn't paying me at all. There's a lot of different ways of doing this. I know sometimes I'm misunderstood. People think I think there's only one way. There are many, <laughs> many, many ways to do things. What is so good about a million free users compared to 10,000 pay users? I'm, you know, I have a, a theory on it, but I think it's a good thing for the industry just to think about and for anyone out there who's thinking about running a business or, running a, or building a software product. Like, What do you want to be? Do you want to be the company that gives away everything for free or do you want to be the company that has fewer people but are paying and are, are investing in you, and you're investing in turn back in them. I'm, of course, entirely separate from there are some products out there that are intended to be beneficial, and there's no cost attached because they there's a net add to the internet or the world, and people are doing sure. it for a purely beneficial purpose, and they rely on donations or so forth. I mean, there are things like that, but I think those are far and few between. You know, Wikipedia being one of those, let's say, and you know, having a foundation behind it where it has a huge benefit, but it's not a, a service as such. It's not something that you rely on for your own business to make things happen. Those are more like public utilities. You know, public yeah, utility yeah. works. And, and, and people are willing to yeah, people are willing to invest the time in it because of the greater good. And if Wikipedia, if they woke up one day and said, hey, we're going private, well, that would be problematic. Because <laughs> it probably would be. Right. Totally. <laughs> won't, won't happen. We're going to see Jimmy Wales' face on that site asking us for money <laughs> forever. at the end of time. I recommend listeners should go buy 
reworked because you could practically read the table of contents and go, God, I need to wait a minute, send people home at five. What's that about? Or, you know, press releases are spam. Tell me what that means. It's the book, the great fast read because you're just nailing all the high points. These are the things you've learned. These are what you don't have to do. There's positives in there too, but you've got a lot of, you really don't have to do this. You've been told you have to do this. But you're not obliged to do this when you run your own company. You can make your own decisions about what you do. And here's stuff we found that worked. Yeah, it's even yours. We were told we couldn't. It's mm-hmm. yours. It's it's your company to do whatever you want with, and you don't have to do it the same way everyone else does. The book, by the way, can literally. I, first of all, I don't like long business books. I only read half of them, and I and I, and I just <laughs> lose interest. So we w- didn't want to write a book like that. So rework can literally be read by even a slow reader in three to four hours, and you're done with it. There's no filler. We cut the, this. You might find this interesting as a, as a writer. We um, our second to last draft was forty thousand words, and our final draft was twenty thousand words. So <laughs> we cut the, we cut out every piece of filler we possibly could, and said, "I love that." I don't want to bore anyone. This should all be red meat and good stuff. So it's a quick quick read, and people hopefully will will enjoy it. That, that's the old writer's joke: is I wrote three thousand words. If I had more time, I would have written two thousand. Exactly. Words. <laughs> it's very true. It's very very true. Thank you for joining me on the podcast, and thanks for all the advice. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash new disruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at new disruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. You can drop me a note via newdisruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.